0: I am here for another episode of the Square and Compass podcast with brother Jason Richards. I'm just going to go through your bio quickly. I'll put it up on the screen. This is from the Masonic Round Table website. You are a worshipful brother, your past master of Acacia Lodge number 16 in Clifton where you were raised in 2012 and you're a member of Colonial Lodge number 1821 in Washington DC. Favorite Masonic topics include history of Freemasonry worldwide, social cultural impact of Freemasonry, and history and evolution of the Masonic mythos. That is a lot of big words, and I'm not that smart, but I'll try to uh, I'll try to talk about them with you.
1: It means I'm a nerd.
0: There you—that is wrong thing. A <laughs> nerd. <laughs> I'm a nerd too, but my nerdiness tends to run more towards scary movies and Star Trek and all that stuff. Um, you also apparently have a lot of bow ties. I do. Is that yes. like that? Do you do you have Masonic round table bow ties? Is that like a sales pitch, or do you just really like bow ties?
1: I just love bow ties, and we we tried to make a. I tried to make a Masonic roundtable bow tie to the point where I designed a prototype. So my wife is a graphic designer and I do a little bit of, you know, chicken scratch sketching design work. So I've, I've designed all of our Masonic Roundtable logos, as well as our pins, everything for the Mid-Atlantic Esotericon, a couple other projects. And uh, when I say I've designed it, you know, I've, I've had the idea, I've sketched it out. And then I've literally sat like over my wife's shoulder going, no, put that there. Put that there. Put that there. Okay, that's perfect. Good. Um, so one of the things that I thought about was, oh well, I should make a Masonic round table bow tie, and honestly, I just couldn't ever get a a prototype that I liked the the design of. So so that kind of fell by the wayside but I got into bow ties because I had a mentor back um, when I was young in church who um, was a federal judge and he uh, was just this this dorky tall skinny bald guy Uh, but he he was always known by you know wearing the biggest baddest bow tie around and that made an impression on me and about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I said, you know what, I really need to try to, to learn how to tie a bow tie. And so I got myself one or two learned how to tie them and realized that bow ties were a really good conversation starter. And bow ties were a really good way to stand out, especially in the professional world. And so, you know, I, I, I ended up, you know, at, at work one point in you know this this big organization uh, where you know the the head of the organization recognized me not because I was you know Jason Richards but because I was hey that guy with the bow tie, and so I just started wearing them and wearing them and wearing them and it it just kind of ended up becoming my thing and then COVID happened and I uh, I go to work you know, in my home office like this now, and there's not much point in, in wearing bow ties quite, a, quite at this point in time, but I'm looking forward to going back into the office and putting them back on.
0: Well, I, I spend my life dressed in shirts that are bleach stained. So who who am I to, you're, you're still much better dressed than I am. I, uh, so far, the, the one consistent um, critique I've got of my podcast, I've got a lot of, you know, critiques, but the most consistent one is like, I gotta dress better, but I don't see that ever happening.
1: But- so it's part of your identity and and your brand, and that's awesome. Like you you have this you exude this this confidence and this down to earth like this is what you're getting and this is who I am. And that's brilliant. I love it.
0: I appreciate that. I'm gonna use that philosophy when I'm trying to hit on girls at the bar because that's much better than too lazy to do his laundry or take a shower. Go on with that. <laughs> it just ex-
1: means you're supremely confident in who you are.
0: But I'm going to run with that. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to start with, uh, with uh, let's start with the heavier, heavier topics or maybe oh more philosophical. Um, we'll talk in the more philosophical space. I, I mentioned in an email I sent to you Um, I'm working on a paper which I hope to publish to uh, Medium, I think, under the Square and Compass banner um, about the idea of suffering in Freemasonry or more to the point, whether Freemasonry is worth suffering. Because it seems like and all the things that come with it, because it seems as though to me, and I'm not sure in the States, I, I believe it's the same in Canada, a, a colloquial expression is, it should go family, work, then Freemasonry. And that's something that people are told very early when they when they join. I don't know if you have the same, same expression.
1: And we throw God in there too. Okay, yeah. The United States so- is God's country, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very much a, a similar mantra because Freemasonry, if you'll let it, can take over your entire life. Is
0: that a bad thing?
1: No. And, and here's why. It, you know, Dividing up your time, we're taught as Freemasons to divide up our time, but dividing up your time, much like your own spirituality, much like your Masonic journey, is heavily individualistic. So if you are someone who gains so much pleasure and, and so much goodness out of the Masonic experience that you want to, and you make the concrete choice to prioritize your Masonic experience and the time you devote to that Masonic experience at the expense of other parts of your life, then I fully believe that's an individual decision. However, I think we need to be strong enough to make that decision constantly or consciously excuse me instead of letting freemasonry run our lives like by you know being unable to say no or or letting other parts of our lives that we we find important or say are important erode in you know at the expense of of Freemasonry so I think if if you are being very judicious about it and you are making a conscious choice to put your life's energy into Freemasonry then I think that's perfectly fine I think where people get into trouble is where they let their family life go or they let their marriage just decompose because they're spending six nights a week out you know Doing drill with Knights Templar, reading the minutes um, instead of nurturing those other life commitments that they've made. So Freemasonry yeah. at the expense of conscious commitments that you've already made and and are now breaking bad. Freemasonry, you know, putting your heart and soul into it and devoting a large portion of your time to it. Fine.
0: I guess that that's the the road that i'm trying to navigate or trying to figure out without without much success is the it goes back to the idea of 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 suffering there are a lot of other endeavors where um and we've we've all seen the documentaries where suffering for that endeavor something's falling over here, as uh, suffering for that (laughs) endeavor is considered um, noble or stupid or pick your term you want to use. But I mean, you consider musicians, and what many of them will suffer for in order to become the best musician, or (laughs) artists, um, uh, or mixed martial arts fighters, or actors, or, you know, you hear stories of People living in their cars, people sacrificing relationships, people sacrificing—you know—there uh, probably aren't very many world-renowned recording artists who also win Dad of the Year award. But there's sure. this there's this expectation that in those endeavors, it's it's worth it because you create something that helps millions of people. It seems like in Freemasonry, so often we you know, Freemasonry, that's not, it's not supposed to be that it's never supposed to be the type of thing that other parts of your life get sacrificed for, or at least that's just, it seems that it's in my experience.
1: So I can, I can understand and recognize that, that connotation, Uh, but I see, so I, I'm a musician um, and I chose in college, I, I had to make the decision whether or not I was going to go with my true passion, which was music, or whether I was going to, you know, study history and international affairs, which, which was, you know, something I was interested in, but led, led me to a more, you know, defined career path. Um, and I think it comes down to your passion. You know, music is a passion. Food for chefs can be a passion. Masonry is a passion and it's a valid passion you know, we we are all here on this earth for a, you know, a set amount of time, and it's up to us to decide how we're going to make use of that time, and I do think that, yeah, there there is perhaps a conception that, or a connotation that, well, Freemasonry is just a just a silly little club why are you why are you putting in all of that effort, and why are you suffering for the cause of Freemasonry when you're not really doing any good and I think that's a very naive uh, view of the fraternity because there is so so much good that you can do as part of this organization, whether it be the mentoring the development of those around you, the civic duties, the Shriners Hospitals for Children, the charities that, that all aren't necessarily inherently ingrained into the fraternity, but they are outcrops of, of trying to be a better person and a better citizen. So I, I would say, while I recognize that there are folks who would you know thumb their noses at someone devoting his entire life and passion toward freemasonry vice becoming you know a rock star or you know a, a member of you know the the Boston Pops or or something like that i i think that's a very just naive view of of the good that freemasonry is and honestly it it doesn't matter what other people think because I'm the one in charge of my own time. You're the one in charge of yours. And And that might be, Oh, go ahead. No, no, keep going. I said, and that might be a little bit of a cop-out response, but I, I am a big fan of personal responsibility and personal accountability. And so if you are choosing to, to devote your entire life to Freemasonry, um, at the expense of, you know, maybe getting out and building a a family or a career or going back to school to, you know, get your advanced degree. That's fine. That's, that's not good or bad. That's just your own personal choice on how you want to live out your time on the earth.
0: Yeah, I worry. I agree. I agree with you that completely. I guess my, my worry is there may be a percentage of Masons who would, who would want to do that, but when you are you know consistently being told you know family work masonry or family work god masonry when and I suppose I mean I'm sure in, in fairness a lot of I mean how many people told you know uh, musicians or, or anything you know you this is you got to be more practical you got to put your family first um, you got to put you know these things in your life first your income your future. Um, Right. What percentage of of artists heard that, but then chose to um, dedicate themselves to music anyways and accepted the collateral damage, but became, you know, and of of those, what percentage became the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Leonard Skinner, the the, whomever it is. Right. Um, I guess that's always that's. More and more lately, that's been my my question about Freemasonry is um, is just that tension between a passion that can be all-consuming and therefore result in quite a bit of suffering, both on an individual and a you know going back to music, how many marriages end because he's always on the road? How you know? I guess the question is, is it? do you think a sufficient number of people would ever view masonry as being having that much passion for it that you know other things get left in the in their wake and is it worth it is is freemasonry worth you know a marriage ending the way it would be for a rock star or a famous actor or whomever it might be you know you hear in a lot of other endeavors whether good or bad in order to reach the "Quote unquote top." There's a lot of collateral damage that goes into it, and it seems like Freemasonry very much shies away from that collateral damage. It doesn't want that to to be present.
1: So there are certain there are certain commitments we we make and certain promises we make as as Freemasons, and I think the, I think those and the the foundational nature of the fraternity and what we stand for makes it easier for members to, to look down upon putting masonry first over other aspects of one, of certain aspects of one's life. One of those is, is family and commitments before God, you know, Freemasonry is very much without going into detail a commitment before God but so is a marriage if you if you have a religious ceremony in a church that is um, so to me when i when I see someone you know devoting their entire life to Freemasonry like at the expense of their marriage per se now that's you know, that's, that's a choice. Sure. But you're, you're putting one commitment before God over, over another one. And I'm not going to say whether or not that's, that's right or wrong, because each situation is different. Uh, But, um, you know, as, as part of, part of being good men and making each other better men is trying to make each other better family men, better citizens, um, better, you know, husbands, fathers, sons. I think another piece of this is the fact that Freemasonry costs money and Freemasonry is expensive, especially if you get, you know, if you get, you know, high enough to where everybody's like, Hey, I've got this new honorary degree. I would love to let you be a part of this club. Just pay me a couple hundred bucks and then buy all your regalia. And you're into this, you know, honorary club that I'm just letting you out of the goodness of my heart join. You know, so if you if you want to continue feeding the, the Masonic almost Ponzi scheme that is, I'm going to get flame for this, the Masonic Ponzi scheme, that is the appendant body system, where in the 1900s, everybody and their mom wanted to make their own appendant body. And masonry is just like this ultimate bureaucracy where it's easy to grow, really, really hard to shrink back down. Um, You now have appendant bodies that are all struggling for the same, you know, small, small group of candidates. Because the Masonic membership in the world today is much less than it was 100 years ago, uh, or even 50 years ago. You you have everybody who's being pressured to join everything and support financially, uh, temporally with your time. All of these other appendant bodies that that may or may not have a value proposition in today's society. You need money in order to, to be a Mason and join all of these different groups. And you get money by having a job and, and a vocation. So that, that to me might be one, one reason, at least an underlying subconscious reason why Masonry is focused on putting your vocation first or your job first. Because if you don't have a job, you can't pay dues, you get suspended and ultimately expelled. What do you, what do you think, Cameron?
0: I think you're right. But that is why that my I've been saying for and I should be very clear. I speak for for myself when I say this, this is Cameron Adamson uh, speaking on behalf of Cameron Adamson, not the Grand Lodge or Windsor Masonic Temple or anything like that. Same here. I think think you really nailed you. You really um, got it absolutely right not just for masonry but life in general needs you need an income from somewhere at a certain point um in any endeavor right there comes a point where yeah you, ha- you know you need the potential to be able to earn some income from that endeavor and that potential needs to be it doesn't have to be 100 percent. i mean how many musicians make a living how many actors make a living but it needs to be present and at least you know don quixote level is realistic in the sense that yes this might be might be possible um, and i think that that's where where the challenge is and i'm sure you've seen a lot you know a young man will join freemasonry he'll be dedicated but suddenly he has bills to pay suddenly he has a family and you, you you know, you don't see them for, for months or years at a time. It's the it's the income aspect, I think, that is the challenging part, especially since the 1970s, when you saw, you know, they call it the great decoupling, you saw incomes remain pretty stagnant while GDP growth rose, which meant the average working class, middle class man had to work more hours to get relatively the same income. So, yeah, so that leads me to my next question then, the idea of a professional component to the craft. Do you ever think that that would be a possibility? So that if there was, say, 10% of of the Masonic population wanted to dedicate themselves full-time to the craft and put in 40 hours a week of either Masonic research or Masonic practice or Masonic study, that they could do so without, you know, having to fear living out of their car or something
1: so i think i think that exists today but it is a minuscule population of the fraternity and it's relegated to folks like mark tabbert who is the curator of the George Washington National Masonic Memorial down, down here in Arlington, about 15 minutes away from me, or, uh, folks like Brent Morris, Art De Hoyos, who, um, are are employed by the Scottish Rite House of the temple. Uh, you, there are very, very few openings, you know, mostly in like historic preservation, uh, and, and some research where you can, you know, I, I think deep down inside, it's, it's just about any Mason who loves education, I think has this, this deep seated desire to, to just like nerd out on Freemasonry for 40 hours a week and make a living off of it. I, I think there are a lot of folks, me included, who would just love that. And, and would find that to be very fulfilling. But it's like my decision not to go into percussion performance or percussion education and to go into history and international affairs instead. Say, so, you know what, I, how, how difficult do I, do I want my, my future career to be? as far as making it and being able to to support myself and and perhaps eventually a family. I think uh, I love the idea of a professional Mason, especially one who is contributing quality research to the craft on a full-time basis. There is so much research that we can do for masonry we we know so little about our history and we've only been around for 300 ish years at least officially and there's so little that we know to the point where we we get into arguments over whether or not the premier grand lodge was founded in 1717 or or like 1724 1721 um we we still, you know, don't, don't have a clear answer on that. There's so much good that could come out of having a cadre of professional Masonic researchers who are paid a, a living wage just to, just to do Masonic research. And I, I think that would be brilliant and amazing, but there has to be a, a benefactor there. Like I, I, think there, there has to be some way. Like you know, back, back in the old days of the aristocracy, you had artists making a living because they had a wealthy patron or benefactor who was enabling them to, to be a, you know, to be an artist and paying them a, a living wage. I, I think the same thing would have to happen uh, in Freemasonry in order for us to build such a cadre.
0: Would it necessarily need to be a benefactor, or is there? Room in this, the, the podcasting, um, slash social media fields. I mean, could you ever imagine a uh, Joe Rogan or, or Alex Friedman type of, of, say, podcasting success or just any, any type of media success in that
1: area? I think, uh, as much as I would love that. I think that would be phenomenal and I would just eat that up. You have to look at your market fit and your market size. And when you take a look at the universal appeal of somebody like Joe Rogan or Howard Stern or um, even Simon Sinek or uh, Steve Blank, uh, founder of the lean startup movement, you look at their, their audience and their market and you compare that to the incredibly specific niche that is Freemasonry. With Freemasonry, you get you know the the population of Freemasons. Um, you you get you know you can include you know women Freemasons as well as uh, co-masons. Um, in that, it's still a very small population. And unless you are going for something like Dan Brown that has a wider appeal, both to to the fringe and conspiracy theorists, but also as a um, also also as you know an an author who who has wide appeal just for you know writing you know awesome books that that have you know mass appeal, you don't have the market in Freemasonry in order to, to make a living off of, off of a podcast, you know, because I tell you what, if we did uh, Robert Johnson, wouldn't have another job. I wouldn't have another job. Like if we were able to, to, you know, make our living off of Masonic podcasting, I I almost guarantee you there would be a number of us who would be like, all right, I quit. I'm doing Masonry full-time.
0: Is it that we don't have the, market or kind of to push back a little bit, could it be that the, the, we've preemptively narrowed our market to, obviously Freemasons are going to have a, an interest just by default, but um you know the Windsor Masonic Temple, for example, which mm-hmm. uh, is celebrating its hundredth anniversary this year. I mean, that would be of interest to historians, heritage preservationists, architects. Um, I had an interview. I'll put the link up somewhere up there. Uh, with Jason Rhodes. He was a he's a scientist. There you go. So at some over there. Point, so, Some corner. It'll be out there. Uh, Jason Rhodes, he's a scientist with NASA and he's responsible for the Euclid space mission, which obviously any Freemason would care about Euclid and geometry and how geometry is used to understand the universe in this case. So is it possible that maybe we have a, a larger market than we think? It's just part of the problem is perhaps it's hidden. And the other part is, you know, maybe a scientist who loves geometry, would really be interested in my interview with Jason Rhodes, but he hears Masonic podcasts and he thinks I'm not a Freemason. So he just doesn't, doesn't click on it. Like, could there be a hidden market out there somewhere?
1: I think there could be, I think there could be an overlap of discrete niche markets. So I think Freemasonry for all, you know, let's call it what it is. It's, it's a very specialized niche economic market, but you could overlap that with historic preservation or um, historic conservation. Again, un, unless you are talking about like a national monument or the George Washington National Masonic Memorial um, is, is still a, a niche market that that doesn't have that, that widespread appeal. Um, you might even, you know, the, the beauty of Freemasonry is there, there are so many things that, that fall under the the umbrella of of freemasonry whether it's the liberal arts and sciences or uh esoteric philosophical uh tenets uh enlightenment tenets uh history you know throughout the world there's there's famous famous freemasons there's so much that we can tap into the issue is it's it's kind of all over the place and you'd have to be attacking like 10 or 20 different markets at the same time um I just, I haven't cracked the code. And, you know, it's something that, that a number of us have been looking at John Ruark, one of my, one of my closest friends and and fellow TMR host is an entrepreneur. Like he is, he is just awesome at, at um, institutional transformation and entrepreneurship. And, you know, we've tried to crack the code on, you know, what, what market would be a big enough market for, for us to be able to do Freemasonry full-time as, as professionals. And I don't have an answer for that yet. I, I don't know if, if I'll ever have an answer for that, but I love the idea. I just, I just don't know how to crack that nut.
0: Me either, but I'm working on it. That's, that's been my, my, my um, kind of passion for the last little bit has been this idea of a, um, uh, you know, that, that it's, it's okay to dedicate yourself to Freemasonry at the expense of everything else. The concern of that then is at the expense of everything else, it can't be that way forever. Um, you need a, a, at a certain point there needs to be at least the possibility of, uh, of an income if only cause that's how you continue to expand. I mean, I can't imagine, um, I'll use MMA cause I really like it. Like, you can't tell Conor McGregor, right? He needs to prepare for this fight, but also he needs to work a nine to five at wherever or do an office job, right? At that point, his his entire life is dedicated to this one thing, which is professional fighting. And ultimately, I think you can say that that comes at an expense of other areas of his life, of his family life, of his health. But what he does for MMA as a sport is he brings it up for everybody. Um, you know, mixed martial arts is better because it was, there's a professional component.
1: But when he started out, and I, and I am not into MMA, I know who Conor McGregor is, so I, but I don't know his story. But I will wager that when he first started out, he had to balance a job and his passion for MMA until he could make enough security and um, enough of a living to move that job aside.
0: To a degree, but I I think that's kind of goes to my, that goes to this discussion is that at the start and I'll admit, I don't know everything about Conor McGregor. So um, if I'm getting something mistaken, leave it in the comments, but from what I've seen and, and researched about him, you know, the beginning of his MMA career involved a lot of debt, involved very, um, Sketchy, shall we say, uh, living arrangements. Uh, involved it involved a lot of sacrifices, with no guarantee. There is no. I mean, Conor McGregor wasn't Conor McGregor until he was Conor McGregor, right? He he, mm-hmm. to get to that point, it required. It involved uh, a lot of sacrifices for something that might never have happened, but it involved you know, uh, massive amounts of debt and questionable living conditions and um, a heavy reliance on the kindness of strangers. Um, you know, where he, he worked, I think he was a plumber for a while. He worked jobs here and there, but certainly there came a point where he had to sacrifice a lot in the hopes of, you know, it goes, one of my favorite Hunter S. Thompson quotes, because I really like him, right, is uh, for every moment of triumph, for every instance of beauty, Many souls must be trampled, which goes to the idea of sacrifice. Uh, it just seems like in Freemasonry, we're not really willing to sacri- we are not really willing to trample many souls. I don't think—I don't—I think most Masons would, would say, uh, right now, anyways, have been conditioned to say, we need to find as much beauty as we can without trampling any souls, which to me limits your ability to to be quote unquote
1: truly great. And I liken that to the stories of like bands that suddenly get big after, after starting off, you know, going into massive amounts of debt, sleeping on friends' couches until one day they get the record deal and they're, you know, they've, they've made it. You see this a lot in, in startup culture as well. When you are starting out, you know, a brand new organization with, you know, this idea for a product or service, you, you know you beg you you borrow you try to get money from wherever you can you don't give yourself a paycheck for 6 months like it's it's that sacrifice in in hopes of one day making your dream a reality and that's it's very similar in the sense of making that sacrifice with no guarantees and i will i will definitely agree with you from that lens that there doesn't seem to be that appetite for sacrifice when it comes to freemasonry But my question is, for those folks who aren't willing to make that sacrifice, do they really want it badly enough? Because I think that those folks who want the professional Masonic experience badly enough will make those sacrifices.
0: I don't know. And I guess that's, that's really, I think what the the heart of this conversation is, is I don't know what the answer is to that. Part of me thinks that you're right, that at the end of the day, Freemasonry is like any, any other endeavor, whereas certain people, it will just hit them for whatever reason, it'll just hit them. And then that's it. That's the thing they want to do. And their goal is to professionalize it no matter what. But the other part of me thinks, well, Is it just that we've been so conditioned in this idea of what Freemasonry is that people may have that appetite at the start, but, you know, if, if you look around and you see people treating it a certain way, treating it like a hobby, you know, treating it like the thing that, um, you only have to sacrifice for as much as you're comfortable with, as opposed to being all in. At what point do you go, Oh, this isn't, this isn't that right. It's, I think it can be easy for passion to sometimes um, uh, for passion to sometimes get, get lost. If, you know, you're swept up by those around you and in, in how they, they act.
1: I think there's something to be said for role models as well. When you think about it, all of those folks who played in bands in their, in their parents' basement, they, they were, you know, pretending that one day they, they could be the who or Jimi Hendrix. Um, the same for, uh, MMA fighters who, uh, idolized Muhammad Ali, um, And, you know, with, with Freemasonry, when you, when you look at the professional Freemasons of, of the fraternity, you you know, you've got Mark Tabbert, you've got Brent Moore's, Art De Hoyos, you know, you've, you've got, uh, you know, a a smattering of, of other folks like grand historians like brother Walter Hunt up uh, a grand historian for the grand lodge of Massachusetts. And, um, you know, a, A couple others, you know, throughout the world, there aren't a lot of professional Masons we can point to, to say, okay, that's the way they did it. That's the path that I can take to get there. And I think the lack of role models and the lack of a you know, a, a dedicated career path or career trajectory is something that further puts people off from taking that leap into a professional Masonic journey because you you don't have the, the steps of, okay, as a band, you play a lot of shows, you record a demo, you send those demos out to the record label, uh, you get a record deal, then you play more shows and then you made it like there's there's just not that career trajectory or that career path that's laid out for someone who wants to do masonic research and earn a living from it.
0: I agree 100%. I think that's absolutely absolutely right. I that that is one of the the main challenges is you, you just don't have that. Like you said, you you don't have that that laid out career path. Even even in terms of struggles because a lot of bands like you talked about right, they sleep out of their car to save money my hotel rooms. They, um, go without food. They, they do whatever. Um, but they, even them, they're thinking about stories from all the other starving artists, you know, the Malibu strip in the eighties poison and guns and roses,
1: you know, CBGB. They, yeah.
0: They, they're yes. still thinking, you know, they, they still have this idea of, well, they, they suffered and made it, um, I guess the and I talked about this a bit with, so I'm recording this on the um, this will be put out on the 17th. Um, so last week's episode, the 10th, I recorded it with Sydney Oberholzer. She's a marketing uh, she's a marketing consultant in the music industry. Ooh, but we talked about this kind of very very subject, which is there's a lot of bands and musicians that make a great deal of sacrifice in order to become quote unquote successful. And a lot of them don't. And there's a lot of fallout from that not becoming successful in terms of their personal life and their professional careers and their financial security. Um, And this idea of like, that's the, that goes back to the idea of the soul being trampled. That's for every, for every moment of beauty, for every amazing song by the Rolling Stones, for every amazing concert, there's a lot of souls that get trampled underfoot. Uh, and I guess that's the, that's the real dilemma is, is Freemasonry worth worth that? If 20 Masons want to be professionals and they dedicate themselves whole hog to it, and five become professionals, and the other fifteen, you know, lose everything or lose a lot of stuff in that journey. Is is that still worth it? If those five professionalize the craft to a degree that it grows and expands,
1: that's not a bad percentage.
0: Uh, yeah, that's way too high. Uh, let's say out of a hundred, um,
1: like one. I've,
0: yeah, I think I think for it to be successful, I, my guess is about ten percent need to be able to professionalize it. Um, So out of 100 people, 90 are not not only are 90 not successful, but 90 suffer, you know, significant consequences to the the journey. They're not able to do it, but 10 can. I think, you know, in the music industry, people would probably say yes, because Mm -hmm. they love the music. They love the concerts. And if not everybody makes it, that's okay, so long as some make it.
1: So I, I, see this, you know, I, being a, you know, being very heavily involved in music in college. I, I keep going back to the, the music analogy in college. I, I am now 15 or so years out of undergrad, which is scary uh, because I still feel like I'm, t- I'm a 20 year old, but that aside and, and me grappling with my inevitable mortality aside Um I know so many folks who, you know, practiced until their fingers bled on their music all throughout college in hopes of, you know, becoming part of an orchestra or philharmonic. And I watched them as they had a very tumultuous 5, 10, 15 years after college. And some of them made it. I've got I've got some friends who are in like the Pershing Zone, which is one of the military bands bands in the U.S. The Navy Band, like orchestras around the country, and that's that's awesome. And I celebrate them uh, because they made it and they they deserve everything they got. But I've seen so many more who have suffered and suffered and suffered, and a couple are still suffering for the art but a couple have also said you know what it's time for me to to do something else and make a living and i think it all comes down to that individualized personal choice of you know what is important to you at this particular moment in time is it is it your passion is it your level of comfort or your standard of living and you know that that's a that's a spiking you know peaks and valleys throughout your life it's it's just a snapshot in time but there's there's no shame in going for your passion and then deciding to pivot towards something that becomes more important
0: speaking of of kind of people's what they find most important and their their passions in uh, January of 2021, what are some of your within Freemasonry? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you consider to be some of the the most important uh, either challenges or opportunities, or just the status of the craft right now? Uh, where do you see where do you see challenges opportunities? Certainly, your involvement in the digital space, Masonic Roundtable. Um, are you seeing that grow with lockdowns and supposing more people spending time on the internet
1: i am and you know i i am not trying to be a self-licking ice cream cone but i love the emphasis and and the expansion of online and virtual masonic education and i'm very i'm very clear you know i'm a big proponent of like castle island virtual lodge under the grand lodge of manitoba um but I do not think that a virtual platform is a one-for-one substitute for the in-person, in-lodge Masonic experience. I think it's a different flavor of Masonry, but I think it serves a fundamentally different audience and a fundamentally uh, different piece of, of the craft. And so I think with Masonic education, it is perhaps much Words are hard and I want to choose them carefully. I think when it comes to Masonic education, there is not a lot that you're missing out on between a brick and mortar Masonic education presentation and a virtual one. If you're talking about going through the degrees, you know, I I tell people the initiatic experience of Freemasonry to me is the true secret of Freemasonry and the bond of fellowship and brotherhood that is cemented when a candidate goes through the degrees in a lodge room in the, the presence of God and his brothers is the secret to this fraternity and a thing of, you know, unfathomable, unexpressible beauty. I don't think that you can have that in a virtual experience. However, when you look at Masonic education and presentations, I do think that um, while there are some differences and there's some things you can do with technology that you can't do in a lodge building that doesn't have internet and uh, and vice versa, there's some things you can do in a lodge a building with... Uh, lodge brethren participating in discussion that you can't do online. But I, I think the disparity in experience is much smaller when it comes to Masonic education. So for, for, you know, a, a world that has been ravaged by a global pandemic and we're getting together close in lodges is a health crisis and dangerous I am so, so happy to see brethren across the world opening their apertures and opening their their worldviews a little bit to embrace a Masonic educational experience through something like Zoom. And it's it's something that, you know, we've been championing, championing on the Masonic Roundtable for, you know, almost seven years now. We're we're hitting our seven-year anniversary in like five weeks. So you know, it's yes. Part of it is it's it's self-validation that all of the blood, sweat, and tears that I've put into them, the Masonic round table is is worth it. But at the same time, it's also just giving people the the ability to experience that fellowship and improve themselves in masonry and education, despite um, the current state of of the world. I think is beautiful, and I'm I'm so so happy about it.
0: Do you think that um, uh, we talked about this a little bit before before we started recording? I, like the opportunities that present itself um, for Freemasonry during. You know, in time of of I think it's safe to say division. Certainly, we have the pandemic. We have a lot of we have a lot of stressors going on right now in the world. Um, I don't know. I worry that Freemasonry might be dropping the ball a little bit in some ways. Um, some some Masons have done tremendous work. You know, Masonic Roundtable. Um, I interviewed Worship Brother Edgar Baron from South Africa. He started the International Masonic. Uh, town halls, which are terrific. Um, and, and it seems like different lodges are engaging in different activities, sending out Christmas stockings to members or um, uh, sending hand sanitizer. But it doesn't seem like there has been, in my opinion, I don't know, it just seems like there's such an opportunity for Freemasonry to try to be a unifying light or of benefit to the world. I don't know. It seems like we're dropping the ball a bit on, on all the things we could be doing.
1: There's so many, there's so many different ways we could go with, with this particular discussion. Um,
0: I leave it up to you. Go whichever way you want.
1: Oh man. Oh, I'm gonna Whatever. I just trouble. want to
0: say, I, I don't agree with anything you says in advance. No, no I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> no, that was my line. I'm Jason Richards. and I don't agree with anything I just said. <laughs> um, I think you know we are we are in a time of of division and and strife uh, throughout the world Um, you know i'm i'm in the us just outside of washington dc it is january 6 2021 and armed protesters stormed my capitol building 20 miles away to block uh the certification of the the core underlying principle of our national identity as, as Americans, which is the democratic process the democratic election process. Um, and there are, you know, there are folks who are saying, well, why, why isn't Freemasonry leading the charge? You know, we, we have had, um, a lot of internal countrywide strife, um, over, um, the the targeting of people of color and the Black Lives Matter movement that that has resulted from that and there are there are people who are like well why why isn't Freemasonry leading the charge as as a moral organization that that strives to be a moral code that that raises itself as an enlightened group of friends and brothers who are above the rest of of the profane world called non-masons profanes and and unenlightened why isn't Freemasonry you know, leading that charge. And I, I think there, there are a couple reasons for that. And, and first and foremost, I, I think it's that as you and I mentioned, I think that Freemasonry and Freemasons in a lot of ways are just as divided as the world around us. You get all sorts of people in the Masonic fraternity. you get libertarians republicans democrats and and again, I apologize for using the u s references that's that's just kind of my my frame of reference but you you get people who who believe kind of opposite ends of the spectrum who are who are in um in the fraternity and that's that in and of itself isn't a bad thing that's that's actually a very good thing because getting people uh, of differing viewpoints and, dare I say, diverse viewpoints and walks of life into the room together to be able to talk out their differences and find a common ground in this brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God, I think is a thing of beauty. But as a fraternity, we have lost that ability and, and the we've lost that ability to have that constructive conversation and engage in the first three liberal arts and sciences, grammar, rhetoric, and and logic. So I'm a moderator of a a rather large Masonic Facebook group known as the Winding Stairs, Freemasonry group. And invariably, when somebody posts something that could be construed as political, you get 10 different brothers, at least, saying this is politics. This shouldn't be on a Facebook page. As Freemasons, we don't talk about religion, we don't talk about politics, and we don't talk about borders or, or national boundaries. The third one is not nearly as well known, but definitely politics and religion. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the at least the American founding fathers who were who were active in the overthrow of the British government most certainly met in taverns to talk about politics. I think what we what we as a society, at least in America, have thrown away is the ability to have constructive discourse and learn from each other instead of letting it fuel our hatred and divisiveness as a fraternity. And so where Freemasonry has dropped the ball is our our inability and the inability of our members to come together and have a constructive exchange of ideas. And learn from each other. It's it's really the 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 disappearance of the moderates and and the ability to see each other as as equals instead of going into this polarized us versus them uh, mentality. And so where where I see Freemason has Freemasonry has dropped the ball has been at home with with us and our ability to just relate to each other as as members and brethren of the craft. Because I tell you what. If we learn to treat each other truly on the level as as we're instructed, right, and we learn to set aside our differences and try to learn from each other and put each other in each other's shoes, that mindset will propagate outside of the walls of the fraternity. And if enough people embrace that mindset, it will grow and become infectious, And so I think Freemasonry has dropped the ball at home. And that's what I think we need to pick up in order to begin affecting change at home first, but then having that change burst through the seams and infecting the rest of the world.
0: What about the, I I agree completely.
1: I thought you said you were going to disagree with everything I said.
0: I mean, I'll edit this so everything sounds like I'm just, I'm, agree or disagreeing based on what is most beneficial to me at the moment. That's why there's an an edit. I'm just, I'm too lazy to edit. I'm not editing anything. This is all just going up. Um, No, that's okay. That's
1: what we do on TMR too.
0: Yeah. Who has time to edit stuff for heaven's sakes. I'm not editing anything. Um, (laughs) No, I, I do. I agree. I agree with, with everything you said, but I'm also wondering when I talk about dropping the ball, um, what about more the in a like a, a structural or infrastructure type of way? I mean, to use one example, um, I think it's it's it, when people are are scared either because they're financially insecure or they're scared of a pandemic, then they're more likely to act in perhaps irrational or just not so helpful ways. Um, even in Canada right but but also in the States there's been a lot of news coverage about um, stimulus and financial supports or lack of financial supports for people who are out of work my guess is and I'm not seeing the actual books for for any Grand Lodges but my guess is there's a lot of Grand Lodges right now that even if they wanted to provide assistance to membership in a coordinated way to say we know there's a pandemic a lot of you are out of work we're going to offer everybody you know benevolence to get through this time or hell we'll send out masks to everybody or we'll do any of these things that they just don't have the funds to do so because for so many years you know dues did not increase at the rate of inflation and we're kind of in a situation where financially or just from a strength of our infrastructure maybe we don't have the ability to help people as much as we would like. And as a result, um, people just aren't as secure. I mean, I don't know how many masons there are in the States. In Ontario, there are 33,000 approximately. In Virginia,
1: I believe there are, it's either 16 or 32,000. I can't remember. This is bad because I'm on the, I'm on the grand lodge membership committee. So I should know this, but, uh,
0: so, I mean, imagine if at the start of this pandemic, Grand Lodge was in a position to say, anybody who needs benevolence, uh, no questions asked, just send us a, a letter from your secretary. As opposed to, you know, there's still benevolence, but there's hoops you got to jump through and not everybody, if everybody asked for benevolence, there would not be enough benevolence, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so, I guess, yeah, I'd be, I'd be dropping the ball in terms of the just the infrastructure of, maybe not taking care of our house when we could, and now there's a crisis and we can't do all that we could otherwise.
1: So, yeah, I mean, few things are as hot of a topic for debate as, as raising dues happens to be. Um, and so I, I really think when you look at an organization that is confronted by rapidly declining membership inflated costs um inflated competition not not just with all of the other things that you could be involved with outside of masonry but with masonic organizations and independent bodies who are all competing for the same group of dues uh, dues paying members at least and the the fights that that brethren will get into to keep from raising the dues by $5 a year. Um, I really think that, that you have a number of grand lodges, yeah, you know, at least those that, that don't have endowments or, you know, amazing buildings and benefactors, like, like some of the grand lodges in the U S but I think the majority of the grand lodges are just trying to, to scrape by with, with what they can. And so I, I completely agree that, um, you know, the, the, a lot of Grand Lodges, you know, might not, that, that might not appeal to them, giving benevolence to everybody because they just can't. But then the, uh, the libertarian in me says, well, why, why should it be, why should the benevolence be meted out at the Grand Lodge level? And why can't that be a local Lodge thing? And I tell you what. On the local lodge level in the United States, I hear those great stories of a lodge that bands together and gives money to, to a brother who is, who is out of work or lost his job or, um, brethren of some brethren in my lodge who went on a, uh, Uh, just went on on a tear collecting personal protective equipment or ppe um, and brought you know truckloads of ppe down to our masonic home so at the at the local lodge level i think that benevolence is thriving in in those those close-knit lodges who take care of their own and to me i think that's it, that's not as big of a news item as you know a grand lodge giving a stimulus check to every single one of its you know subordinate lodge members but that doesn't diminish the impact that freemasonry is is having at least within itself and and to you know probably a lesser extent the community around those subordinate lodges
0: It's never gonna yeah yeah the the community is an important element of it too right a a lodge that helps. Yeah, uh, a, a brother with a, a benevolence check, right? Some of that benevolence is going to be spent at the local store, at wherever it might get spent. It's not, um, or even if it just goes to, you know, maintaining housing or, or whatever it might be, that's not going to. That can only be a benefit to the community. Um, I guess. We, do you, um, uh, do you, do you see? We talk, excuse me, we talked about this a little bit before, um, but I think this is a good place to kind of end this discussion on, is, is do you see Freemasonry um, when restrictions get lifted? Do you see it coming back uh, stronger? I've, I mean, I've heard so many different theories and I don't know which, which one I believe, Some people have have said it's gonna be like the Roaring Twenties, which obviously in in Freemasonry was a a time of great growth. You know, you had the parallel being, you had the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920. Once that was done, you saw this great resurgence, not only in Freemasonry, but in, you know, the Roaring Twenties society. Do you see it being one of those situations? Do you see us becoming trained to do more stuff online? Like, I guess, How do we come out the other end of this? Because 50% of me thinks that we're going to see a great Masonic resurgence and 50% of me thinks um, we're going to see continued decline um, for a lot of the same reasons we saw before as well as now people might be afraid to be in groups or public or things like that.
1: You're asking so many good questions tonight. I was totally not prepared for this. It's Um, because
0: people see my face and they think That guy's not going to have anything intelligent to say. I got a bleached bleached shirt on. I can't wash my clothes.
1: See, I I cover half of my face with my COVID haircut because it it adds to the mysteriousness of my character. Um, And I just like doing this constantly throughout TMR. Um, mm, That is a fantastic question. And like all of your questions tonight, there's no easy answer. Uh, there's no silver bullet for for predicting the future of of Freemasonry. Here's here's what I what I predict. I don't think you can compare us to. I I don't think you can compare the 2020 Masonic atmosphere to the Spanish flu or the influenza uh, pandemic of the the early 1900s. And here's why. We, as as a country, and um, as a world, are we are in such a different place. Uh, back in you know the the early nineteen twenties, you know, we're just coming out of World War One. America is very isolationist at this point in time. There, right now. In the 2020s and 2021, we are in a highly integrated global society. The world is more connected than we have ever been in the, the history of mankind, at least as far as we can tell. In addition to that, you have so many more opportunities and ways to spend your time you know, back in the 1900s, you had pretty much Freemasonry and the Oddfellows, and and those were really the the main games in town. Uh, you you had a couple fraternal organizations here and there, but by and large, you you had far fewer ways to spend your non vocational hours here the sky is the limit you can you can join the rotary you can go to a church club you can be a gamer you can do sports you can do world of warcraft you can join a book club you can you know do cooking clubs with people around the world there's so much else that you can spend your time on you know, it's, it's not just a small, tightly knit group of organizations with the same general value proposition fighting it out and Freemasonry coming on top because Freemasonry is the oldest and the largest and the most prestigious at the time. Now, Freemasonry is an organization that is fighting to, to get itself away from the precipice of cultural irrelevance. And it's got you know some some really great folks in it who are who are charging forward, but it's not nearly as relevant and it's not nearly as powerful of a of a cultural organization and entity as it was a hundred years ago. So that being said, um, or or all of that to say, I think we're, Deluding ourselves if we look back at the 1920s and say, okay, it's going to be exactly the same because we both came through cultural pandemic or both came through global pandemics. And this is what happened. What I think instead will happen is that um, a lot of Freemasonry will go back to the way it was before the pandemic. You will get a lot of lodges that will turn off the Zoom sessions and will turn off you know, Skype and WebEx and will go back and retreat into their buildings and will never come out again. I think you will have some folks who will just be in love with the education aspect of it and will keep that educational aspect going um, in a virtual setting as well as a, a Lodge setting. I think you'll see more blended educational programs where you will be giving an educational program in a Lodge and that Lodge will stream that event. You know, I think of the, the uh, 2016 Pennsylvania Academy of Masonic Knowledge, where um, that was where the Masonic Roundtable was, was asked to come and, and speak and, and be the special presentations for that day. And we said, okay, but can we stream it live? And that was the first time that the Pennsylvania Academy of Masonic Knowledge had ever streamed their proceedings live. And they have streamed every subsequent proceedings live to to an audience outside of just Pennsylvania. And so I think that will continue. But, you know, I, I don't see Grand Lodges becoming more okay with having virtual lodges you know i think endeavor lodge in victoria australia and castle island are anomalies in the masonic experience and i'm and i'm not saying that in a judgmental good or or bad tone but they are they are very very much anomalous and i think they will continue to be the vast minority because i i believe fully that once we get past the pandemic it's going to be much easier for brethren who make up the grand lodges in in the United States and, and Canada and the rest of the world I, I think it's going to be much easier for them to settle back down into what they're comfortable with and just keep plugging away as Freemasonry continues to lose members
0: well that <laughs> now happened, you can say though.
1: you now you can say you disagree
0: well, what I'm, no I, I see I don't know that's I I honestly uh, I don't know, which is unusual for me to say in a Masonic context, because I feel like I know it for a fair bit. But I, like I said, I honestly don't know where it's going to go. Half of me thinks it's going to, you're going to see a renaissance, and half of me agrees with you 100% and, and thinks it's going to be, uh, um, you're going to just see continued kind of, like you said, we're going to slip back into our comfortable roles and just continue to see that a, the declining membership. With perhaps a greater amount of, there'll be a greater amount of online activity. But in a lot of those cases, you don't even really need to be a mason to take part. Um, you can say you are. They're not. I mean, they're not going to be tiled. So if if your interest in Freemasonry is purely from a historical, academic standpoint, um, you know, you may let your membership lapse, but continue to attend the, the educational components.
1: So that's so that's the short-term forecast. Do you want to hear the longer-term forecast? Well, I, I know, I know we've we've gone a long time, and I, I feel like I'm just sitting here yakking your ear off. And I no no, let's go. Let's.
0: I hope it ends on <laughs> a happier note than your your short-term forecast. Let's go with the longer.
1: <laughs> so here's here is my my longer-term forecast. I've talked about this. And I've alluded to this a little bit on on the Masonic Roundtable over the past seven years what i think is going to happen is if if you've seen john ruark's membership statistics um, from a statistical standpoint the freemasonry's membership at least in the united states has been declining every year since 1959 and if you extrapolate out that that decline curve it hits zero at 2040 meaning um in you know, and, and one of the best case scenarios, Masonry is completely dead in the U.S. in 2040. I don't think that's going to happen. And John would say, well, you don't have data to back that up. And I say, yes, that's correct. However, what I think is going to happen is we are going to reach a new equilibrium within Freemasonry. And what we're going to see is as membership continues to decline you're going to see Freemasonry kind of split a little bit. And what will happen is Freemasonry will still have a brick and mortar experience in urban areas and suburban areas that are tightly, you know, packed with, with Masons. Um, and so you'll have more Masons in proximity to each other who, can, who have the luxury of traveling, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes to to their lodge. I think in the more rural areas um, where you might have to travel six hours or seven hours to the nearest lodge, if enough of them shut down, um, I think you're going to see those members perhaps looking more to a virtual Masonic experience, just because the The opportunity cost from an economic standpoint and a a time management standpoint of going to lodge just, you know, every month just isn't there because you just don't have the lodges around like you used to. Now, I'm sure there will be some lodges in rural towns that'll just be, you know, that town lodge and that that lodge will be the only lodge, you know, in the entire county but I think you're going to see a diversification of the Masonic experience where it's going to split and it's going to be largely based on geography and the folks that are the urban areas that are tightly packed with Masons will have the ability to to have more of a, a brick and mortar lodge experience on a regular basis. And I think for everybody else, if they want to continue in their Masonic journeys, which I think many of them will, they will look toward more of an online Masonic experience that isn't governed by geography and geographic proximity. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Every, everybody says the decline of Masonry is, is just a bad thing, and they're they're just, you know... They're they're paralyzed by by the numbers and the declining numbers. I think that masonry is evolving and it is moving to the next phase of the organization, which is arguably yes, it's it's less popular. It's it has less of a social standing than it than it did in the you know eighteen uh, hundreds or, or early nineteen hundreds. But I think Freemasonry is moving toward a new equilibrium where it will continue to serve the needs of the brethren and the needs of the community but in in different ways, to different people and on a different scale, and I think that's okay because I don't think we're going to die, and I don't think we are going to um, I don't think we're we're going to lose all of this rich history that we have as, as an organization because we got stubborn people like me and stubborn people like you, Cameron, who are going to keep it alive because we're passionate about Freemasonry. We see the value in Freemasonry. And we're going to try our damnedest to, to keep this thing going.
0: I agree completely. Many people have called me stubborn. So, uh, but I agree 100%. And one way that you are working to keep Freemasonry going is the Masonic Roundtable. So where do people find that? Um,
1: uh, oh man. Follow it? All that we try, is- we try to be everywhere. Um, so you can go to the Masonic And you can, uh, you can see us there. We are on Facebook, the Masonic Roundtable. Look it up there. We are on YouTube, the Masonic Roundtable there. We're on Twitter at Mason Roundtable. We are on Patreon. That's one of the biggest things that people can do to keep supporting us because, um, you know, we, we all, you know, for, for TMR, I say, I tell people, this gets back to the professional Mason thing, you know, if we could make a living off of masonry, I think that would be amazing, and that would be a lot of our goals. But um, we don't pay ourselves from from the Sonic Roundtable. We we do this volunteer because a hundred percent of the the proceeds that we get from our Patreon from selling pins and and other things goes right back into the show, and this is kind of the gentleman's agreement we have with our various spouses that you know it's it's okay for us to spend the time, but we can't you know we can't keep going into the hole financially. Until it uh, until the point where it, it you know detrimentally impacts our, our family finances. So so all of the money that uh, that we raise through our Patreon account goes 100 percent directly back into the show. It upgrades you know our our equipment so that we can give the listeners and the viewers the best experience possible. It um, enables us to to travel and do special shows from different conferences and and things like that so you know if you if you can support the show on patreon we would love for you all to do it uh, it helps us out a ton it pays for our hosting costs and and all of that goodness but uh more importantly than that i i don't care if you never give us a single dime that's not what we're here for we're we're here to interact we're here to interact with our listeners and build a connection between ourselves and the rest of Freemasonry, as well as those people who are not Masons who are interested in Masonry. So some of the best conversations I've had have been with other people who um, you know, watched the show and just got interested in in Freemasonry because of that. And we have great conversations and great discussions. I love it when people email the show, the Masonic Roundtable at gmail.com, and say, hey, you know, love your show. I'd really like you to do an episode on this. Our our 100th episode was on racism in Freemasonry. And that was, you know, one of the scariest episodes I've I've ever done. Um, and that was one of the first requests we ever got for a topic. We were two shows in and somebody emailed us and said, please, 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 would you do a show on f- racism in Freemasonry? And we all looked at each other, at least virtually, because we're all spread out across the United States, and said, what kind of show are we? What, what are we at our core? And we decided we are here to talk about Freemasonry and make things better. And, uh, and so for episode 100, we had an amazing discussion on, on racism in the craft. And we wouldn't have had that discussion and that incredible conversation without one of our viewers taking the time to send us a note and and let us know what they'd like to hear. So for those of you who uh who are interested in tuning in and watching thank you so much you you know that connection is is why i keep doing this but uh please send us your send us your topic suggestions send us what you like about the show send us your feedback like we're we're so so incredibly feedback hungry because that's how we evolve the show over time. If you take a look at some of our earlier episodes and it's compared with like you know the one that we're shooting on tomorrow night on new year's resolutions, you know, we've, we've gone through spurts where we do different things and we have evolved the show based on customer feedback and listener feedback. And uh, so I, I would say that, you know, I would love for folks to listen to the show and watch the show, but I would love more than anything to get feedback on, on how we're doing, how we're serving people and uh, how we can make it better. Because that, that constant striving for not perfection, because I don't think we'll ever get there, but the Kaizen approach of being 1% better every day is what keeps me getting out of bed in the morning. And we get a lot of that from our listeners. And I am eternally grateful for that. So tune into the Masonic Roundtable every Thursday night at 930 Eastern. You can find us on YouTube, you can find us on Facebook, and uh, you can find us on podcasts like Apple and Stitcher Radio and Google Play and all of that good stuff. Listen in, let us know what you think, and let us know what you want to hear about because I'm interested in talking about what other people are interested in me talking about.
0: And I will leave the links in the description uh, for anybody who wants to check out the Masonic Roundtable. This is the part where I will say, um, anybody wants to hit the subscribe button, like, comment, I've got etc. etc. I've got Patreon, all that, all that fun jazz. And with that, thank you so much for taking the time. You are the second member of the Masonic Roundtable I've got to speak with. Hopefully, I can uh, keep adding to my list but thank you so much. It's uh, terrific hearing from you and I uh, wish you all the best and I'm sure we'll keep in touch.
1: Cameron, this is a phenomenal show. You're doing a great job and I will support you any way I can. You're awesome.